you're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. Well, good evening, Kaleo. Good to see you all. My name is Chris, as Aaron mentioned. As always, anytime we get to share this space together, it's humbling, it's an honor, it's a joy. Aaron and I love uh, pastoring this community so much. It's I always say this, but like it's crazy to me. Literally, you all could be anywhere else doing anything else, and all of us have shown up in one space at one particular time, which is a really is a challenge in our day and age to all show up in one space at one time together anyway. But we all showed up here bent on like some expectation that God might be with us, that God might reveal God's self to us, that God might speak a word to us, that God might fill us fill us afresh with God's spirit. Like there's something that we share in anticipation when we come together in this place. And I don't think that should ever be lost on us. I think that's the beauty of coming together as God's family. And so we show up again on this day, hoping that we might remember that God loves us, that we need each other, and that we're all trying to figure out how to practice the ways of Jesus as the multi-ethnic family of God together. So here we are, trying that again. We find ourselves in a season known as Eastertide, or just Easter. Easter continues on for 50 days after Easter Sunday in the church calendar, and this is the sixth Sunday of Easter. Personally, I'm really fond of this season. I like drawing out the resurrection because you kind of like get to follow the resurrected Jesus around a little bit, see what he's up to, where he's going, because he's pretty quirky in his resurrected mode uh, before he ascends and the spirit falls and then the whole church is birthed and we go from there. And so there's something about the way Jesus walks around post-resurrection, pre-ascension, where there's all of this like calamity and pain and confusion unfolding, and yet here's this person who's defeated death like cooking fish on a beach, right? Or walking with two strangers to another town. And it makes us begin to think almost slowly, like maybe dead things really can rise with the power of Jesus. Maybe something really can change. Maybe something that isn't as it should be could become as Jesus desires it to be. And so it seems fitting that we show up in this season of Easter because last Sunday, you all gathered, I wasn't here, you all gathered in the wake of the Buffalo shooting, the shooting at a Taiwanese church in Laguna Woods, California, the Supreme Court decisions regarding Roe versus Wade moving around, and collectively a sense of hopelessness seemed to be winning out. Like the, the ways of death can feel like they're winning at times in our world. So with all of that filling our minds last Sunday, Pastor Aaron brought the fullness of herself and a passion for the justice-dealing ways of Jesus to the Kaleo pulpit. Like I said, I wasn't here. I was in Vancouver preaching at a friend's church. I'm lonely and missed it and longed to be with you all. But my heart aligns with Aaron's and the vision that we have for Kaleo to keep creating space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together as the multi-ethnic family of God. That means we learn personal and individual ways to follow Jesus, 
but maybe more importantly in our current cultural moment and in our society, ways to move together communally as the people of God. So not to imply that any of you doubted this, but to name it with clarity and directness, Aaron and I stand together as we lead Kaleo. And I think it requires a public acknowledgement from me as her co-pastor because often the prophetic voice of black women is silenced and overshadowed. We don't want that to be the case here. Last Sunday, I couldn't have written or preached the sermon that Aaron brought to us. In fact, she brought the fullness of her spirit-filled self into our community, and that's a testament to the courage and preparation she put into it. It's also a testament to the community that receives her in that place. So words and definitions fall short in the wake of Aaron's prophetic witness amongst the Kaleo family last Sunday. Fortunately, I was able to listen to it just the same. But for the sake of clarity, Aaron and I are together in this. And we hope that you all are together in it with us as well that we would continue to try to figure out what it means to be followers of Jesus in this day and age, that we would follow the way of Jesus who at the outset of his ministry announces that he's here to bring good news to the poor, those who are held captive, those who are sick, and those who are oppressed. And so we seek to embody that, not just in pastoral leadership, but as a community of God as well. And so, Before we dive in to our passage in Luke 24, let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are the one who draws us to yourself, and you are here with us now. We don't need to invite you, but rather welcome you and your presence that fills a room when your people gather together already. But we do invite you to teach us to show us your ways, to remind us what it means to be people who follow a Jesus who operates in compassion but initiates justice, who breathes out forgiveness and love but calls into action that that needs to be made right. Would you help us follow that Jesus as a community of people? Would you stir our hearts to know you, to love you, to follow you, to receive what it is you offer us as well? And God, as always, I pray that you'd give me your words to speak this evening, that I wouldn't say things that aren't for you or from you, and that we would make much of you and learn little by little how to follow your son Jesus along the way. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, have you ever had the sensation when you've been out for a walk that someone was following you. It's creepy, huh? Kind of creepy, right? Or maybe you've experienced the sensation that you're supposed to know someone who's nearby. Like you can feel their presence, but you're not quite sure where they are or who they are just yet. Our passage for today has all kinds of these real-life layers, moments and interactions that if we'll allow ourselves to explore this passage with a fresh imagination, will remind us of our humanity and our connection to one another. We're looking at Luke 24, verses 13 through 34. 
It's often called the road to Emmaus. And it takes place three days after the traumatic crucifixion of Jesus and his subsequent burial. In fact, the passage takes place in the moments after Easter morning. I think situating it in this time is really important. You'll see why in a moment, right? In the wake of rumors about an empty grave, two followers of Jesus leave town. I'd assume they actually wanted to leave town closer to the murder of Jesus, but it seems they waited until after the Jewish Sabbath, being good Jewish followers that they were. And so it was on Easter morning that they hit the road to Emmaus. However, on their way out of Jerusalem, someone unexpectedly joins their walk. And it's at this point, before we move through the passage together, we'll wander our way through it. I just want to give you permission to awaken an imagination of participation, as I call it. To actually pretend as if you are on the road with these two disciples and right now their unknown friend as they walk from Jerusalem, carrying with them the trauma and grief of Jesus being crucified, but something in their minds making them think it might be different, and yet they still go the other way. Pretend you are there, walking with these two friends as they head out of town. Here's how the story begins. Again, Luke 24, 13 through 34, we'll mosey our way through. Starts out, that same day, which again is Easter Sunday, right? Situate yourself in the moment. Three days before Jesus was crucified. So now, Easter Sunday, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. And personally, I love this little detail here because it lets us know that they're gonna be on the road for about two and a half to three hours depending on their pace. Right, so you can kind of start to get in your mind how long you're going to have to walk with them now. For the next two and a half, three hours, I'm going to preach about us walking. <laughs> That's just a good preacher joke. Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> Only an hour. As they, as they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. And like, there is so much to talk about, right? Not, not even just the crucifixion and the empty grave, but everything that had transpired before that as they rolled into the city. As people shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna on the Sunday before. Right, All of these things they're talking about. Perhaps they had been at that final supper. Perhaps they had followed some of the people to the side of the crucifixion, all of these things they're talking about. And as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them, but God kept them from recognizing him. This creepy resurrected Jesus just shows up and starts walking with them, which would, I don't know, maybe make you a little jumpy in light of everything that's happened up to that point in time. And he asked them, Jesus, but unrecognized, he asks them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? So again, you imagine what's unfolding here, right? These two people are walking side by side, discussing so intently the things that have transpired that Jesus already notices that. His observation skills are elite. He's paying attention. 
And he's genuinely interested in what it is that's going on between these two people. After he asks them the question, it says they stopped short. Sadness written across their faces. Can almost feel like the reliving of the grief. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened here the last few days. So first note is they're in Jerusalem, right? So he is, in fact, going to join them for the seven-mile walk, right? And he's also, like, slow-playing his hand. Oh, what things? He's like, how do you not know, man? So what things, Jesus asks them. And Okay, we're in verse 19. And what has Jesus done so far? Creeped on him unrecognized, yes. All he's done is ask questions. He's just interested in what it is they're carrying with them on the road. Jesus is invested in them. As we already know the story, he finishes out the whole walk with them. Probing them to share what it is that's causing them distress. Jesus offers them the opportunity to name it, to acknowledge it, to say what it is they're carrying with them. Jesus wants to know what things are burdening you. We get that same question from Jesus, who would love to go for a walk with us as well. And we just talk, what things? So here's how they respond. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them Jesus was alive. Some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. Now pause for a second. One, they're retelling their whole experience of all of this, right? You can feel it like coming out of them. Like we thought this was going to be something else, but now we have no idea what's happening. And yet they're still walking along. Even Peter, who ran back to the tomb, is still puzzled. Their grief, the, the trauma of what's unfolded has not been quelled in their spirits. They're carrying it in their bodies that move out of town. They're leaving, headed the other direction from where Jesus had been. And Jesus then finally responds. Verse 25, then Jesus said to them, you foolish people. And let me just say, my favorite part about that is like trying to figure out how Jesus said it. I think for many of us, we've grown up in spaces where Jesus was like, you foolish people, right? He's like, grumpy Jesus. This is obviously not grumpy Jesus, right? Like this is the most patient Jesus around. And so like, 
oh, you foolish people, right? Like, I don't know, it's some Greek phrase or Aramaic phrase that's like, you guys are silly, right? You guys are silly. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering into his glory? And we're all sitting here 2,000 years later being like, no, it's pretty tricky. Like people have doctorates to try to solve this still. And he's like, I told you about it for a while. And they're like, yeah, I know, but it's all happening in real life right now, right? So then what does Jesus do? This is why I know he's not ticked off. Verse 27, then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus, this same Jesus, these two had been with Jesus maximum three years, minimum a decent amount of time. They had heard this. They knew this. But not like knew, knew it. They just knew it. And he's just like, well, hey, let me, let me tell you again. The crazy thing is they still don't know he's Jesus. They're like, yeah, we could really use a lesson right now. And so the entirety of scriptures has always been pointing to Jesus. That's what Jesus, this unrecognized version of Jesus, is trying to say. And yet he's actually unrecognizable even as he's trying to convince them that it's him that it's all about. So, verse 28, by, the time, by this time, they were nearing Emmaus and at the end of their journey. And that's just another fun little fact, I think, or, I don't know, thing to note, right? Apparently, it takes Jesus about seven miles worth of walking to connect Moses and the prophets to Jesus the Messiah, all right? That's, I mean, for me, it takes many years, but Jesus was able to do it in three hours of walking, <laughs> Uh, I just think that's hilarious, actually. And so here's what happened next. They finish up. Apparently, he ended the conversation or something. And then Jesus acted as if he were going on. Now, again, you've got to walk with them. You just walked seven miles and had these in-depth, meaningful conversations. And you're to your destination, and Jesus is like, okay just like keeps walking, right? This is why I think Jesus is hilarious and silly and having fun, right? Because as he does that, they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home with them. As they sat down to eat, he took the bread Right, we, we've spent time in the life of Kaleo talking about these interesting dynamics when the host becomes the guest and the guest becomes the host. And, and in the way of Jesus, it's like always circling around and coming back towards one another. So Jesus had been their guest like all along and there's something about the way he taught them that when they sit down at the table, Jesus becomes the host at their table. And he takes the bread and he blesses it. And then he broke the bread and he gave it to them. And at that moment, their eyes were open and they recognized him. And then Jesus disappeared. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, like the moment of recognition, though, 
is my favorite part. Right, like, did you, you, you caught that, right? They sat down to eat. Jesus ate his way through the Gospels, right? Even resurrected Jesus, a little hungry. He took the bread and he blessed it. Then he broke it and he gave it to them. When's the last time Jesus did that? The Last Supper, right? And then their eyes were open and they recognized Jesus. He taught them for three hours nothing. They just ate a little bit of bread together and they're like, that's the guy. He's the one we've been looking for all along. I'm going to return to that in a moment, right? Because Jesus is now gone. He's disappeared. And I do not have a way to explain that to you. So welcome to the mystery of following Jesus. And in verse 32, they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? Now they have some meaning making, right? The moment at the table says, oh, that's what I felt all along this burning in my heart. It was literally a burning for a place in which you would share the table with Jesus. And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem, which I think is wild because they convinced Jesus to stay with them because it was getting late. And now they're going back to the place where the murder scene unfolded three days ago. And they traveled by night, another three hours back, 14 miles of walking in one quick swoop. There they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them who said, the Lord is really risen. It might seem as if this resurrected Jesus doesn't proclaim his resurrected self properly. Right? Like, I, I mean, if, if I was unjustly crucified and then was raised to life, I would be way less calm about the whole thing. Right? Like, I would not be going on a seven-mile walk with two people who are seemingly not notable. In Luke's telling of Resurrection Sunday, of Easter Sunday, the first place that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, shows up is among two friends walking the wrong freaking direction. That's where he goes first. Wow, so Jesus. Luke doesn't even bother to give us the name of one of them. All we know is that one disciple was named Cleopas, and the other was apparently not important enough for Luke to jot down their name. Many scholars do believe that it was Cleopas' wife, Mary, one of the Marys of all the Marys who were at the tomb. And I like that idea. But Luke doesn't give us that person's name. But apparently to Jesus, though, Cleopas who's not famous or known for much, and the unnamed disciple were important enough to catch on a little walk out of town. What an experience to be the nameless disciple who Jesus revealed himself to. Right, part of my heart for today is to like let this story from Luke 24 just stand by itself, induce awe, stir our imaginations. 
not try to over-explain it or over-exegete it, if you will. Like I want it to settle in our hearts and in our spirits as if perhaps our hearts are burning within us as we encounter resurrected Jesus again. And so all I'm going to do is make some observations, which I've been doing all along anyway. But I think these will speak to us about what Jesus is like because I think it will help us reimagine our image of Jesus. I mentioned a couple of them already. First would be that Jesus just seems to be having fun. And I think if we reimagine Jesus as the type of person who does, in fact, like to have some fun, you start to see it unfold in this seven-mile walk. He plays with them. He, like, toys with them, right? Pretends he's leaving. He's like, I can't wait for the climax at the table. Like, yeah, I can just see him anticipating that, right? Apparently, it's also important to Jesus that he didn't appear to the 12, which are now the 11, you know, apostles first. According to Luke, it was these seemingly two unimportant followers who warranted his first appearance. Another observation would just be that Jesus and the good news of the kingdom of God aren't that cryptic. Like, in fact, Jesus would be implying it's been here all along. It's like I was always telling you that, and the Moses and the prophets and the Psalms were always pointing to the suffering and resurrected Jesus. And so he does, as is the way of Jesus, takes great patience with us to teach us, takes great care to connect the entirety of what God has always done, culminating in himself. Another observation is it just seems that Jesus is not just about transferring information. It seems to me that this encounter on the road to Emmaus is not just about him teaching for three hours, but it's instead his desire that is at the core of who Jesus is to hear from us, to be with us, to join us. And from that posture then begins to teach us. Another observation, one of my favorites as well, Jesus isn't in a hurry. Like, he's lollygagging with two randos for like three hours, right? He's supposed to be up to way more than that. He just defeated death. He's like, you want to go for a little walk? <laughs> right? Like, I, I mean, this is, this is wild when you actually think about it. This is how you would write, you wouldn't write the script, of the resurrected Jesus coming up out of the grave that morning, which again, how do we even explain that? And he shows up and he's like, I'm gonna go for a walk, but I'm gonna play it real cool for three hours. They're gonna have no idea who I am. I'm gonna do this table thing and then gone. <laughs> I mean, come on. The resurrected Jesus insists, it seems to me, on personal encounters over public announcements. Over and over again, the resurrected Jesus just gets personal. Like, I, he doesn't show up to Pilate. He doesn't say, hey, let's run it back. Get Barabbas in here. I got a little something to share, right? No. He's like at the beach cooking fish, walking in the wrong direction, right? Showing up in locked rooms, letting people touch his wounds. Weird also. 
And then from this, my favorite observation of this is that Jesus willingly walks the wrong way with us. Even when we don't know we're going the wrong way, which poses a quizzical question, and you may or may not like this question, is there a wrong way if Jesus is with us? Like that should just open us up to be free to follow this Jesus, right? Like everywhere you go, if Jesus is with you, which he is sometimes, you just can't recognize him. I'm not sure if you're going the wrong way. Then the whole story ends with the two disciples, Cleopas and the nameless one who we'll call his wife Mary, turning around and going home. But again, why did they suddenly recognize Jesus? So I have a theory. I have a theory, okay? They're sitting at the table. Certainly, their imaginations are sparked because their hearts are already burning within them. When Jesus takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to them, like, oh yeah, that's the Jesus who's been doing that all along, right? I think there's something that's so powerful and so profound in the stories of the resurrected Jesus that communicate that his wounds are still present on his body. And so they're walking together, you wouldn't notice. You sit down at the table, you're starting to note some things that this Jesus has taught you all along. He breaks the bread and hands it to them across the table. What do they see? I think they see his wounds. I think they're like, oh my gosh, all of this combined, the three hours of teaching for sure, right? Then the moment in which Jesus takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to them for sure. And then there's got to be something else. And it's at that table that is the embodiment of who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. We've got to get a shared table, even with those who don't recognize Jesus, so that we can see the wounds of one another revealed there because it turns out that is, in fact, what Jesus is all about. So, where has Jesus gone unrecognized in our lives and in our church communities? If you want to find him again, find those who are wounded. Find those who have stood on the margins looking in at the table, waiting to be invited to have a seat. Go to those tables. Set them somewhere else. Set them on the edge. Where has Jesus gone unrecognized in the life of our community? A community that has not existed all that long, to be quite honest, and has endured pandemics and all this kind of stuff too. But could it be that he so longs for us to meet him at the table and in the wounds of one another as he showed us on the road to Emmaus? I want to give the Spirit of God the last word, so just be still in the presence of God, and I don't even know what that means for you all as you pray, sit, listen, reflect. Ask God to help you recognize the love of Jesus among us. I don't know. But let's be still for a moment, and then Tina and Breton will come up and close us out.
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, continue to stir our imaginations. Stir them in such a way that we would learn to recognize you. That we would recognize you when we eat together and acknowledge you host that table for us. Help us to recognize you when we witness the wounds of one another. Help us to learn to live and love and move as Jesus showed us to. As people who join in bringing good news to the poor, to the captive, to the sick, to the oppressed. Holy Spirit, fill us to do that work. And as we do that, would you draw us together as a community, the body of this Christ, who hosts the table and presents himself to us, is the one who would willingly go with us in whatever direction it is we're going. Would you give us eyes to see him? Ears to hear. Hearts to receive what is stirring or burning within us. And would we be reminded, Jesus, that you're not in a hurry, but you desire to go with us and be with us. May we know you. May we know this love that you have for us and for one another. And may it be the very thing that is embodied in the community of Kaleo. To you be the glory. We love you, God. In your name we pray. Amen. For more resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.